0: Tabitha, I would just uh, plug the same thing Cartini Clinic has been plugging since day one, which is to let everybody know parents don't cause eating disorders. And critically, children do not choose to have them.
1: You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hi there. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I speak to Dr. Julie O'Toole. And um, Julie founded the Cartini Clinic in 1998, which I'm sure many of you have heard about. They've treated more than 3,000 patients and their families from around the country and around the world. So, been doing a lot of work and focusing on children with eating disorders. And Cartini Clinic really focuses on the family and bringing the family into treatment and stressing that parents do not cause eating disorders. And the eating disorders are a brain-based illness. So you can imagine why I like that approach. The first thing that I asked Dr. O'Toole was to tell us a little bit about herself. So here's Julie.
0: Well, I graduated from the University of Washington in biology and uh, went to Germany to work in a virology lab. And it was while in Germany, uh, in the virology lab, that I became interested in medicine and decided to stay in Germany to go to medical school, which I did. It takes about six years in Germany. It was a wonderful experience, and it was very uh, helpful later on uh, to have had sort of a different perspective on medicine, psychology, and so forth uh, that sort of informed my critical thinking abilities, I think, for later on. Uh, and I came back to the United States, I went, did a pediatric residency, and then I went into the practice of general pediatrics. And I was a general pediatrician for years, uh, and adolescent medicine doctor. I think anybody who practices adolescent medicine knows that eventually, if you are a female adolescent medicine doctor, you will have patients with eating disorders in your practice. Um, This is an experience that I think all adolescent medicine doctors make. And because of this, adolescent medicine um, in the 90s really uh, took over the care of children with eating disorders at certain centers like Stanford here on the West Coast, uh, some places back east as well, Long Island Jewish Hospital, uh, where Neville Neville, uh, Golden worked. Uh, And uh, this shift slightly away from the emphasis on psychiatry began to take a, a harder medical and biological look at the treatment of pediatric patients with eating disorders. And so my um, experience and expertise is really with the pediatric patient and not with adults, which is a, a very uh, different branch of medicine than uh, the treatment of children. So. I saw some patients with eating disorders as a general uh, pediatrician and I was really struck by the fact that this severe illness, anorexia nervosa, which is what I was largely seeing, that it, it just seemed so biological, so little volitional. It is a torturous condition and it didn't make sense to me that people would choose to go through that um, or would choose to perpetuate it. And that really was the beginning of my thinking about this as a brain disorder. Um, When I founded the Cartini Clinic in 1998, I wanted to rectify some of what I viewed as the weaknesses of where adolescent medicine had gone over the past 15 years or so, and that was in philosophically separating parents from their children. And, you know, I guess, Tabitha, the reason that this had happened was, uh, you know, apart from eating disorders, adolescent medicine doctors deal with um, many problems that arise in adolescence, such as um, exposure to drugs and alcohol exposure to sexually transmitted diseases and exposure to sex in general and in in order to really be able to help many kids they had to develop a pretty stringent confidentiality um, relationship with teenagers and in my view this kind of over time developed into an attitude where the primary relationship was between the patient and the doctor and the parents were really not included at all nor were they kept informed um, under the sort of heading of uh, confidentiality and i felt like this was going to be counterproductive for kids with eating disorders so from the very beginning we tried to insist that families that parents be a part of treatment. And as time went on, and we saw more patients, and very young patients, and by very young I mean 10, 11, uh, began to be referred to us with eating disorders, it became even more critical to make sure that the parents were not somehow sidelined, left out, or even blamed.
1: So um, Julie, uh, what? How was that received when you initially um, started to make noises around, hey,
0: parents should be part of this, they should
1: be part of the treatment?
0: Oh, people thought I was crazy. I remember distinctly going, uh, uh, being in London at an international eating disorder conference and sitting next to a Swiss uh, psychologist who said to me, because I had spoken out about uh, this being a brain disorder and parents not causing it. And she leaned over to me and she said, How can you believe that? Everybody here knows that there's an anorexogenic family and that these kids come from anorexogenic families, families that predispose them to developing this illness. So that was, and in some places remains, the prevailing paradigm at the time. And uh, if, you know, I mean, you thought otherwise at your peril.
1: But then, so what did they do if people say it, such as myself presented, who, um, I actually, I took psychology at A-level, which was a good while ago now. And from the A-level eating disorder, because that was actually before my onset, I had adult onset. But just from taking psychology A-level, I believe that anorexia was, like you just said, it's, it's, uh, caused by a family situation is caused by parents cause that's what I was told in my psychology classes. So I didn't really think that I could have an eating disorder cause I'd had such a wonderful family. Um, and that's probably why I, ne- I never went the diagnosis. I just thought that doesn't happen to people like me. I have a great family. Um, so so what would, what would they say to, to somebody that presented as myself, um, with a very supportive family.
0: Well, who knows, they might have said you didn't have an eating disorder. But you know, Tabitha, I was immensely helped in this uh, from the personal experience that I had growing up. I I grew up in Palo Alto at Stanford University, and um, one of my mentors, a second mother to me, was a Stanford professor. Her husband was a Stanford professor. They had four boys, and the oldest of their boy had schizophrenia. This was a highly loving, dedicated, and educated family. And they took their son, his, uh, he had an unusual form that presented in childhood rather than uh, in early adulthood or late adolescence, a very severe form. They took him to every doctor they could find, both at Stanford, across the country, and in Europe dad was, uh, was Austrian and pretty much the state of the art at the time was to treat patients with schizophrenia um, with Freudian psychoanalysis and other forms of psychoanalysis. And not only did that not help this boy, but uh, it actually caused a lot of unnecessary pain because this very intelligent and loving mother was told that the reason that her son had this severe mental illness was because her husband was a Holocaust survivor and she, and and hence very distant, and she was overbearing and rigid. She, this, of course, entirely left out the fact that she was not overbearing or religious. I mean, I'm religious, not overbearing or rigid, but she... She was so affected by that, even though she knew that that was nonsense. But I remember her telling me with tears in her eyes, I never even wanted to get my Ph.D., but my husband insisted it would be useful. So she felt so guilty and bad about her. Accomplishments outside of raising her boys—that you know that they had reached her in some subtle way with this criticism. So this this old treatment paradigm is not harmless.
1: No, oh, I mean it's as if the sort of diagnosis isn't enough.
0: Um. Exactly, as if the pain of having an affected child was not enough. And I think that this um, experience has been echoed in the experience of many parents of children with autism, uh, in in exactly that same era, this uh, Bruno Bettelheim and and, uh, other um, psychologists like him developed the theory that uh, children had autism because of refrigerator mothers. And these mothers were cold and distant and had not sufficiently uh, loved and nurtured their children, and this was the result. These are not harmless mistakes, and uh, you know. I think. I mean, at a minimum, you'll get a result like you got, where you couldn't even credit that you had this illness because you had such fabulous parents.
1: I think the the um, all of this conversation. There's there's quite distinct differences between. Um, how it affects a child if the sufferer of the eating disorder is a child and if the sufferer of the eating disorder is an adult um uh, you know with the with the child i guess a lot of that is because we know that family based treatment can be so wonderfully effective um and so utilizing the family sh- should be a goal and and can vastly help the um recovery of that child um i think Though for for an adult, it's a bit of a different ball game. I know that some adults do move back in with their parents and ask for family support to recover. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. But the other part of it is I think that, um, and I do, I have myself and I know plenty of adults who have been told this could be, you know, let's look at the relationship that you had with your parents when you were younger. And let's examine that. And let's see if we can, you know, find out why you have an eating disorder from that. And it really um, can affect their recovery. And I think much more detrimentally so because it can years and years of talk therapy then um, are seen as the recovery um, path rather than let's get this person eating.
0: Right, and actually that example, Tabitha, perfectly illustrates why it is so important and so powerful to call, to refer to anorexia nervosa as a brain disorder, as Tom Insel, the former head of the NIMH, so powerfully did in his work. And, the, I, you know, I, I've had people tell me, how does it make a person feel better to call anorexia nervosa a brain disorder? Well, I can't speak for everybody, and I do think that the primary usefulness of calling it a brain disorder is not to make people feel better. What we're trying to do is get at the truth. And by understanding that this is a brain disorder, you can stop asking questions like, why? Understanding that type one diabetes is a pancreatic disorder, keeps you from saying things like why, when what you really mean is how. So if you say, why does this person have diabetes, you're not really asking why they had, there's no why, clearly. They were a bad kid, they were, you know, they had a dysfunctional relationship with their mother, no, of course not. What you're asking is how, how did they get it, right? So. I do think it's um, a never-ending and interesting question. How did this person get anorexia nervosa? And that is a question that will be answered by the science as the science progresses. But to say, why did they get anorexia nervosa? We need to find out why she's doing this. The meta-message is that it is volitional, it's a choice, and there's some kind of psychological why to them stopping this illness. So that's the real power of identifying it as a brain disorder, is that we can stop asking questions like why that carry meta-messages of blame.
1: Oh, it was huge for me. The first time I, I mean, I, I call it um, mental illness, but mental illness, brain disorder, whatever, i that was the biggest relief for me personally. I just was like, oh, so now I don't have to keep on trying to work out why, because I really was drawing blanks. I couldn't find anything in my history. There is no trauma. There is no, <laughs> there, there was really nothing there, and I, I felt so hopeless thinking, I can't, recover from this because I'm I don't know why you know I was told I had to find out why I was doing it and I was I was trying to I just was drawing blanks and the the brain-based illness I was, it it took away all of that and it gave me actually it actually gave me permission to focus on eating well it was and that's why you know I really don't ever I love to call it that. It helped me immensely. Um, A lot of the adults I work with, it helps. I mean, for children, do you think that they get as uh, sidelined by those sort of um, labeling, calling it one thing or the other, or or is that not as as much of an effect? Do you think it's got more of an effect on the parents?
0: I think it has more effect on the parents, but of course a lot depends on the age of the child. You know, So when you're talking about a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, Their cognitive capacity is more developed, of course, and their ability to think abstractly is beginning to develop or has developed partially. And so they too are interested in um, really more philosophical questions like how did this happen and what is the role of genetics in this and what, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Whereas little kids are really just the helpless victims of these awful diseases, they just want to feel better and in fact the uh, little kids present a very interesting treatment example because they're too, for the most part too unsophisticated and too little exposed to the web to come up with the same rote explanations that the 16-year-old will come up I
1: find this so fascinating
0: Yeah you know the 16-year-olds <laughs> will tell us um Uh, I know why I have this eating disorder. It's because controlling what I put in my mouth was the only thing I could control when my life was out of control. Now, that is straight out of somebody's playbook on the web or, uh, you know, in, in the many lay books about anorexia nervosa. Whereas a little kid will say, I don't know. You know, when you ask them, if you ask them anything about why and how, they'll just say, I don't know. Sometimes they will say, "There's a, it's like there's a voice inside of me telling me I shouldn't eat. Sometimes they'll say, there's a voice in my head telling me I don't deserve to eat. Sometimes this behavior will extend to um, not deserving to have new clothes, not deserving to have anything nice, not deserving to have fun. So It's not unusual at all upstairs uh, in, the, in our um, youngest age group, kids 12 and under, to see at least one child who will turn their back to the uh, screen when we're showing a funny movie or a good movie because they feel that they don't deserve to have fun. They will avoid all sources of pleasure. It's, it's wrenching to watch.
1: But it's so enlightening as well though, as you said um, it takes away all of the cultural influences and um, the learned influences and I remember actually I was in recovery um, when I first um, knew somebody who had an eight year old boy with anorexia and it changed my perspective on um, my own exercise compulsions which I had until that point completely always just justified. And, um, oh, it's not, you know, it's not, it's, that's not to do with the illness. That's just because I like to exercise X, Y, Z. And when I um, saw her, her and her little boy and how he was just manically exercising in his bedroom and couldn't say why, <laughs> something clicked
0: in my head. I mean, uh, we've had... We had a really wonderful young boy. He was, uh, I think, 11. He might have been 10, who was so um, behaviorally disordered in terms of his exercise, um, and he was refusing to eat. We had to put him in the hospital to begin with. He had to be fed with an ng tube because he wouldn't even swallow water. And uh, he ripped it out several times. And he would throw himself off of the bed onto the floor and begin doing push-ups and crunches. He, he, he was oblivious of hurting himself. He was compulsed to continually exercise. Ah, uh, We got a really good result with him. This is a very severe form of the illness, but it's far from hopeless.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, definitely far from hopeless. But um, I don't think I, – I think that one of the main um, dangers, of, as you said before, it's actually dangerous when we look for the um, – the why is <laughs> because if you know years of looking for the why, and that behavior becomes incredibly entrenched and, and much more difficult to get out of.
0: Well, and I think that's probably the saddest thing that pr- happened that happens where um, people refuse to accept the neurobiological basis for these behaviors and continue to do what was done in the 20th century, which is basically to just talk to the child until they are quote ready to accept food. Um, is that they they may or may not ever be ready to accept food, and yet every day that passes that they are undernourished, their brain development, bone development, and somatic bodily development falls further and further behind, and there is some evidence that it may not be caught up again.
1: Oh, that is... Um... So that's a, that's another one that's um, quite specific to the children, but really puts a big focus on early diagnosis and action after that early diagnosis. Well,
0: absolutely. And in terms of adults, although um, if you develop the illness, say, when you're 25 or 30 or something like that, um, you may not, your brain will be fully formed and it won't necessarily um, affect your somatic growth, but it will do s- several biological things to you that will absolutely undermine your ability to have good relationships, which is what adulthood is really all about.
1: Yeah, it's, um, and, and very difficult, really difficult to, I had to relearn, actually, after 10 years of having pretty much all social activities shut down, um, I had to relearn how to be around people, um, at the age of <laughs> at the age of twenty nine. Um, it was, it's you know, it, it, it's it's. I think it's somewhat more difficult to relearn things like that at that age. Maybe um, maybe that's not true. Maybe it's maybe it's difficult at any age. But
0: oh, I think I, I think it's difficult at any age, and I think that it's one of the big treatment challenges that we and everybody who treats children and teens faces. It's much easier, given you know that we know how to do it. It's much easier to achieve uh, good weight restoration and physiologic recovery than it is to achieve social recovery.
1: Yes, <laughs> so much, so much, um, Julie. So if anybody is um, anybody's listening to this, and they, you know, maybe they've had a child that's been diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, and I think I'm asking this question because I do know that quite a few parents when they're first sort of getting into well first of all understanding this diagnosis and understanding this illness, maybe sort of just do a lot of circling around talk therapy because that's the more traditional route, and you know like let's try this before we do anything more
0: difficult um what what would you so- what would your advice there be? I would say talk therapy is nice if it if it makes the child feel better, but there are things that you must do uh, either simultaneous with talk therapy or ahead of it, and that is you must wait restore the child. and so uh, you're gonna need to refeed them either at home or somewhere else with help. What we usually Tell families what I tell families is if you can do it at home, that's great. But you need to set a weight gain goal for this child and be firm with yourself that if you do not achieve it, you'll get more help. Because, uh, again, what happens is that, you know, time passes and the next thing you know, six months down the road, this child is the same or worse than they were in the previous six months but now their brain and their bones and their uh, body have deteriorated even further and you may not catch that back up. So set a weight gain goal. Uh, What we usually tell people is set a weight gain goal of 0.15 kilos or about um, 0.3 pounds a day averaged over a week. So you... weigh the child in a gown, obviously with their back to the scale so they can't see what they weigh, um, on the same scales every week. So day one and day seven. And whatever the child weighs on day seven, you subtract what they weighed on day one from that and divide it by seven. If it's less than 0.3 pounds a day uh, averaged over that week, that's a failure ideally you would fail uh maybe no more than two weeks in a row and then you would get a higher level of care help
1: i think that's that's that is brilliant advice for parents that's also brilliant advice for any adults that are trying to weight restore at home with the help of a partner or not you should have you should have a very solid cut off weight with a nuclear nuclear action which is you know i'm going to put myself in inpatient or if it's a child, I'm I'm gonna get somebody else to help, higher level of care. Um Julie, so that's that's um led me to another question that I think would be really helpful to anybody listening to this that is sort of maybe at that point that they're, they're thinking about putting their child or uh, getting some high level level of care help. What what does it actually look like, the process of say if a parent wants to Send their child to the
0: Cartini Clinic. How does that all work? Well, um, all, in the case of Cartini Clinic, it's pretty simple. They just call and um, they would speak to uh, one of the therapists, Katie, who would listen to their story, take their information, talk to them, and then uh, make arrangements for them to come in as soon as possible to see one of our two doctors for a complete assessment. And um, that's a you know a physical exam, an eating disorder assessment, a pediatric assessment, and so forth, at which time, um, if the parents and the doctor agreed that they did need a higher level of care, which is the usual scenario, um, because people who are able to successfully refeed the kids at home just basically don't come to our attention, then we would put them in um, our Partial hospital program and we would lane them by or or sort them by age because we feel very strongly that you need to be in a place that acknowledges that the needs of the 11 year old are very different than the needs of the 17 year old and that they not be mixed um, in their uh, treatment throughout the day and Then we would begin weight-restoring them, uh, including the family, of course, every step of the way. We have uh, parent support groups and um, parent-intensive teaching groups. The parents are not in the unit with the kids during the day, but they take them home at night or home on the weekend. And we teach the parents how to keep them stable vis-a-vis their food at home. And this is the critical step because... And the reason why we think that partial hospitalism is um, in almost all cases more successful than residential treatment, because you need to teach the parents how to make this work once they get out of partial hospital. When when you send your child to residential treatment and you don't get that same kind of intensive uh, uh, education as a parent, they just come back home and engage in the same behaviors that they did before it becomes a revolving door of residential treatment and outpatient i
1: um so I think that from um, an adult's perspective there's a there's a huge sort of trust thing that goes on. I know that there's a big trust thing that goes on um well definitely there was with me. Do you think that another benefit of doing it this way is that the, the children are not sort of just being fed somewhere else, learning to trust some, some other place and some doctors, and then when they go home, they don't trust their parents. Do you think that trust is in there at all?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. And in, and, in fact, we talk a lot to the kids, like, your mom has this. or Your dad has this. Your parents have this. We've been teaching them. They know all about it. The kids see them recording their intake on, their, on our food journals and we teach the parents how to manage the kids' meal plans. The kids are often very mistrustful of their parents' ability to do this at first, and one of our chief uh, points is to help them understand your parents, they've got it, they've got you.
1: Yes, yeah, because that, then that gives the, the kids confidence as well, I think.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and what about the, what about the parents' confidence levels?
0: Well, I'll tell you what. When your child is diagnosed with a really severe illness, even when the doctor goes out of their way to say, this is not your fault, you didn't cause this, you couldn't cause it if you wanted to, as parents, we just blame ourselves anyway. And so often parents are very shaken in their belief of their own effectiveness as parents. And part of our job is to help give them back the self-confidence um, that they are good parents, that they're caring parents, and that they can do this, that they made the right decision. Uh, because treatment is very demanding and requires a lot of sacrifice on the part of the parents. They need to feel that their sacrifice is both seen, acknowledged, and worth it.
1: Um Julie, I um, I want to go back to the, the Cartini Clinic. Um, What has changed in that time?
0: Ooh, a lot, a lot. And, you know, I founded the clinic, but the clinic is what it is today because of some very talented people who have also dedicated their lives and their professional lives to the care of children with eating disorders. So when we started out, um, it was... Um, um, a woman named Shanna Green, who is the COO of Cartini Clinic today. It's big enough to have such an exalted title. It, the two of us, and in short order, a family therapist, Leslie Weissner, who's been with us since then. Be, and I chose a family therapist because it, at the time it was traditional um, for there to be uh, a registered dietitian talking to the families and the kids about food. And I felt like it was more important to have someone help the family with the food who understood family dynamics um, and all of the difficulties that having a sick child can stir up in a family than it was to have um, someone just talking about the food. So essentially all Cartini families were seen by the doctor and the family therapist as uh, that was the the first iteration of Cartini Clinic. It was very small. And then as the need grew, we expanded our team to include another doctor, my partner, Dr. Moshtel. We have family therapists, individual therapists. We have a hypnotherapist. And initially, we just did outpatient and inpatient. We have a very strong hospitalization program and have always had. Um, it relies on the fact that the two doctors are willing to work all the time and to cover the hospital Uh, and But what we discovered was that when kids went from the hospital straight to outpatient that step down was too steep and you would see a repeat hospitalization rate somewhere around 40% when we interposed an intermediary step called day treatment, today it's referred to as partial hospital, but it's the same thing. When we interposed the partial hospital between the hospital and outpatient, suddenly the re-hospitalization rates dropped dramatically to about 6%. So we determined that we would never leave this partial hospital step out of the equation. Now, Two years ago, my son Morgan, who uh, runs the all the day-to-day and the business end and the you know insurance company end and so forth of Cartini Clinic, he's as the CEO. He convinced us that we needed to go a further step to expand our services to a Cartini Clinic that was really designed for the kids. And we moved from our um, building that we've been in since 1998, two years ago, to this new building um, that's not very far away because we need to be close to the hospital and close to the Ronald McDonald House. We um, have two stories, and the top story is the partial hospital where the kids have um, a kitchen where uh, we can make their food. This is Portland, we eat organic and local to the extent that we have, it's homemade food, eaten together, family style. We have a big art room and we have a big yoga room and then we have the three units. The first one is for the little kids, 12 and under, and the second one is roughly for middle school age kids and the third unit is roughly for high school age kids because they all have have their concerns. Many people think that because I'm a doctor, this all we do is engage in medical treatment, but nothing could be further from the truth, because there are two doctors in this practice, and everybody else, and there are about 25 everybody else's, are mental health providers. So that's what uh, Cartini Clinic looks like today. We have um, basically utilized the talents of our talented mental health providers, and Uh, to refine and improve the food experience the meal plan experience both for the kids and for the families and that's been a big core of our treatment because weight restoration is so crucial to success
1: what what do you think are the vital changes that need to happen next
0: well we more and more um genetic studies are planned and are being done, and the, the data is, already, is being analyzed and reanalyzed. And I think that once we are able to more closely define um, the complex genetics of this complex, highly heritable condition, that will help people feel better about understanding its biological roots once we understand the metabolic consequences of starvation and refeeding and so forth better, that will add a big, important medical step to recovery, I think, for everybody. I, I just think the answer is with the science.
1: So to finish, I asked Dr. O'Toole where people can find out more about her and the Cartini clinic.
0: Well, I wrote a book that kind of fleshes out some of the, more the history of the the thinking and my thinking about um, eating disorders. It's called Give Food a Chance, and it's available on Amazon. But you know, Tabitha, the trouble with writing a book is you no sooner write it than it's outdated, because things move fast today. I write a blog, Um, I've written one for every week, now I write it every other week, and if you go to our website, cartiniclinic.com, and click on Cartini's blog, there's probably more than you want to know about childhood anorexia nervosa and all the ramifications thereof. And it, it's a kind of blog where people can ask questions and chime in and make comments. Um, so it's it's live in that sense. Interactive. Yeah. Excellent. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Very refreshing conversation um, for somebody from somebody who has been an advocate for um, eating disorders and the correct understanding and treatment of eating disorders for an incredibly long time and done a lot of work for this industry as a whole. So thank you, Julie O'Toole, for taking the time to talk with me. I think that um, how she describes the process of actually using an outpatient or partial hospitalization program as the Cartini Clinic to help a child with an eating disorder, and not just help the child, but help the entire family just get to grips with the illness and come out in a place where the parents are confident that they can handle it, they can handle their child's recovery, but also that the children are confident that <laughs> their parents can handle it. Uh, must be a very wonderful thing. It, it sounds crazy when you think of it in this perspective, that there was ever a time when eating disorder treatment for children was done outside of involving the parents and sort of this completely cold and clinical experience and then go home to mum and dad who by the way we believe may have actually caused your illness I mean why anybody thought that that was going to work is beyond me but the good news is that that's changing and like Dr. O'Toole said the science is going to prove that this is the weight restoration and using the family and also that understanding eating disorders are brain-based illnesses above and beyond anything else is going to change the way that we treat them. And hopefully the day will come when somebody can ask me, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm an eating disorder recovery coach. And they say, well, how did you get into that? And I say, oh, um, yeah, I had almost died from anorexia. Um, And then they won't look at me as if I just admitted to something shameful or standing there with no clothes on. Hopefully that day will come more regularly than it does now, because there's still that stigma, even in people that don't know that they have an opinion about eating disorders, because it doesn't really come up. I find that when it comes up and there's someone like myself who just very openly says, oh yeah, no, I'm in recovery from anorexia, maybe the time will come when they can say, oh wow, great, good for you, rather than awkwardly look at the ground or shift from foot to foot. Yeah. We're not there yet, but let's hope so. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then I would very much appreciate if you would give us a five-star rating in iTunes store because that means more people can find it. It means that when they Google eating disorder recovery podcasts, this one will come up and they might be able to listen to this great um, interview with Dr. Julie O'Toole and find some life-saving information for their child. So um, that would be great. Thank you. Till next time. Cheers and cheerio.